0: Morning, friends. Well, as you may have gathered from some of the clues, it's Advent. I was uh, scarcely aware of this for most of my life, but the Christian ca- Christians have a calendar that cycles throughout the year, and it suggests different things that we might contemplate on throughout the year. Um, sometimes we think of December as being Christmas time. That's how most people probably think of it. But properly speaking, traditionally, historically, it's not, it's not Christmas yet. It's really just Advent right now. And Advent is all about one thing. What is that? Waiting, getting ready, preparation. Yeah, it's waiting, longing, anticipating. Advent, if we think of Christmas as being about the birth of Jesus, Advent really isn't about Jesus' birth. It's more like the eighth and ninth months of pregnancy. When you wait, our our first son Benjamin was born two weeks late, and while that was obviously far worse on Kelly than it was on me, he was always right here. I can remember this very distinctly. Um, we were both so eager, you know, we wanted to meet him. Just hurry up, hurry up, hurry up! Um, and Advent is about waiting. It's both about waiting for something good to happen, like the birth of a child, but it's also about waiting for something bad, something difficult. That has gone on for way too long to finally come to an end. And we often set aside this time, this time of the year, to reflect on our longing for Jesus' first coming and also our longing for his second coming. And with the church throughout the ages, we cry out, you know, come soon, Lord Jesus. We are weary of the wait. So this year what we're doing is a a short series. I'm looking at uh, Psalms, looking at Advent through the lens of the Psalms. And there are numerous Psalms that are pertinent to this. If you were with us last week, I kind of did a bit of a prequel, kind of a setup to the series. um, Which is a little bit ironic. I'm not good at waiting. So even when it comes to Advent, I started too early, which I know is ironic um, but last week I made four basic claims that I think would be helpful to keep in mind whenever you're reading any of the Psalms. I um, mean, if you missed it, you can go back, you can, you can catch it online. It was kind of an important message. It, it sets a, a tone for a lot of things. But the four big points from last week are that the Psalms are telling one story. There's one great meta-narrative, and that we all have to live the entire story. Not just a part of it. We get the joys and we get the sorrows. But number two... The story ends well, just as the Psalms end and erupt in praise, His last number of Psalms, um, so our story is heading to ultimate happiness, even if it is through a twisty road. Number three, that the story is really about Jesus. He is the blessed man of Psalm 1. He is the longed-for king. He is the one, he's the innocent sufferer. The Psalms are about him. And fourth and finally, therefore, they find the most meaning. They, they connect most with our lives when we see how our life is connected to his. If we, if we link our life with his, then these, these, these pictures begin to make more sense. And so today... We're going to really jump into the heart of Advent. And we're going to be in Psalm 89. And I apologize up front. I have have zero slides for you at all. Because I was off this week. And there's just nothing at all. So no slides. So if you have a Bible, if you have a phone, some such thing. It would be great for you to follow along. You're going to need Psalm 89 for that. And as you flip to it. Maybe the, maybe the most important thing to know about Psalm 89 is it's a whiplash psalm, okay? The first half is just happy, happy, happy. It's full of joy. It's full of rejoicing, not just in general, but in particular about the Messiah. And then in the middle of it, in verse 38, it just crashes and it turns significantly darker, okay? It's long, so we're not going to read it all, but I'll give you some samples. And if, but if you go back and you choose to read it, and Psalm 89 is worth knowing, I think it'll become very obvious to you. It's happy, 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 bam, and then it just drops. The bottom falls out in verse 38, and doesn't, honestly, doesn't really recover. So here's how it goes, and verses one to four gives you a sense of it. It's happy news. The psalmist writes, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I'll make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love we built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You've said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Okay, it's not just happy news. It's very specific, very particular happy news. Namely, that God has made a promise to David that from him, from this great king David, will come the Messiah. Now David is the king. He's a great king. And God has promised that the Messiah would come through his line. That he's coming. And this is something that's a cause for great rejoice. Now the idea that the Messiah was going to come. This is not new here. This is an old, old idea. Right? It's as old as the garden. Even in the very you know, beginning of the story in Genesis 3. God told Eve, listen. You will have a descendant who will give his life to defeat Satan. And he will restore everything. And then, a few chapters later, he tells Abraham, you know what, it's going to be through you. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to the nations, right? In fact, the very blessed one will come from you. And what we see is that God is like winnowing all of humanity. First you have Adam and Eve. It's going to come from Eve. Who else is it going to come from? And then eventually he picks Abraham says, it'll come from you, Abraham. And not just from any of your kids, but from Isaac. And not just from Isaac, but from Jacob. And not just from Jacob, but from, uh, well, from who? And then where does it go? Right? And we have to follow the story. Well, we kind of lose track of this for a little while. And then finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells David, He's coming from you. And there's language here in second. Well, we'll look at this. It's very reminiscent of of what's going on in in Psalm 89. And there's a bit of a play on words. David has been saying, "Um, I want to build a house for God, by which he means a temple, a place of worship. And God says, No, 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 no. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Take a look at this. This is 2 Samuel 7. We'll pick it up in the middle of verse 11. God is speaking. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, he's speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom shall be established forever. Three times in that passage he talks about this forever language. Now, there's two levels of this. The first the most simple level is that it's Solomon. David's baby, Solomon, is going to go on to be king. But it goes beyond that. All of this language of eternity speaks not just to another king, but to an eternal king. And this was broadly understood. The king, the great king, to whom all kings point is going to come from David. He will be a son of David. And this was broadly understood by the Jews. It's why it's a number of places it happens. Maybe most famously in Luke 18, the blind man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He calls him a son of David because it was understood that the Messiah would be this son of David. Okay, so Psalm 89, at least in the first half, is a reflection of On this fantastic promise that he's coming. He's coming from Eve. He's coming from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob. He's coming from David. God is sending a Messiah, and we know where to look. He will be of David's line. Take a look at verse 20 and 26 of Psalm 89. He says, I have found David, my servant, and with my holy oil I have anointed him. And he shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I'll make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth and my steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him I will establish his offspring forever and the throne and his throne as the days of the heavens okay it's great news however does anybody know when did David live what years were the, were the years of David's reign in life it's about, that's exactly right. It's about a thousand BC. It's an easy one to remember. A thousand BC is David. Okay, you guys, a thousand years is a long time. It's a long, long time. There's this promise, David. He's coming. He's coming from you. Okay, a thousand years ago was ten twenty. Okay, what the heck was going on in the world in the year one thousand? I mean, I don't even know some horrible feudalism of terrible misery or something, right? Ten twenty. It's a long time ago. It's been a thousand years. And as this Psalm goes on, it is basically having the it makes the reflection that, well, not only has it been a long, long, long time, and this promise has not been fulfilled, but when Psalm 89 is written, everything is absolutely falling apart, and there's no hope that it's ever going to be fulfilled. It's been a long time. The psalm that begins with God, look at what you've done, look at your promises, look at the majestic faithfulness that you have. It turns into this crushing. Disappointment. And everything in the beginning is a setup for the greatness of this fall and this, this massive dismay. It, the, the flip occurs in verse 38. But to kind of get the effect, go back to verse 36 and we'll just watch it just fall off a cliff. Verse 36 His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. Faithful witness in the skies. But now, You've cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. And off it goes. And the gist of Psalm 89 is you said, but you haven't done it. Where are you? Why are things not happening the way we thought they would happen? It's been a long, long time. And the cry of verse 46, this is is the essence of Advent. In verse 46 it says, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? That's Advent. How long? How soon? When will you finally do what you said you would do? It's been a long, long time. Now, there's a huge temptation at this point to simply say, soon, soon, and to skip to the end of the Psalms. Let's turn to 145 and watch everything erupt in praise. Everything's fine. But you guys, the story will dissolve into praise eventually. Sadness really will be forgotten and joy and praise really will cover all things. But we don't get to do that yet. Not only because this is Advent, but because this is life, and this time is about waiting. Now, full disclosure, as I share some thoughts on that, when it comes to suffering, I am a great coward, and I just want to get through it, whatever's going on. In fact, the truth is, I just want to get through everything. I'm impatient about absolutely everything. I listen to my podcasts and books and sermons at 1.5x sometimes 2x my internal clock speed is high I just let's do this I hate waiting I just just get next 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 and so Advent is excruciating to me as are many other things in life but Advent is about waiting and in the providence of God he has seen fit to take his sweet time in oh so many things have you guys noticed this Some of you have been waiting for a long time. I wonder what you're waiting on right now. Many perhaps are waiting for the end of COVID, right? I mean, join the club for that. I saw my mom is amazing. I saw her on Thanksgiving um, for the first time since, I don't know, March 8th or something like that is a long, long time. They finally are allowing porch visits at her nursing home. Um, But we thought she was going to come to our house for Thanksgiving. At one point, we had hoped on that and that didn't happen and on we go and I don't think Christmas will be all that much different. They are grateful for a small opening there. How soon until this thing is finally behind us? Some of you, many of you perhaps, are waiting for the salvation of your children. Some of you, I know, you've been praying for five years, for 10 years, for 20 years. And you think, how soon? If not your children, perhaps it's your husband When will he ever, you have been living out Peter's admonition to love him in ways that might open his heart to see the sweetness of the gospel. And it's not working. And how soon? Some of you perhaps are praying and waiting on the repentance of your wife. Will she ever open her heart to you? Yea, even her very self. When will the job come? Or the romance? Or the remission? And waiting is hard. A thousand years is a long time. And so is whatever you may have had to endure. And so this Advent here, as we wait together, we're not just reflecting about the long wait for the Messiah. And we're not just waiting for him to come again, although that would be the sweetness that solves everything else. But we're waiting for something here and something here and something here and something here we wait so how do we wait what do we do what do you i'm in the midst of it what do you do i'm not a passive person i don't like the passivity of waiting what what am i to do why does it happen and i want to suggest this week and then in a a couple weeks again a why and a what and a how of waiting um gleaned from my understanding of the scripture and gleaned from a number of wise friends of mine um, whom I've been discussing this with, like how, how do we make our, get our heads around Advent? And I think these questions can be answered uh, in a number of different ways. And so I'm gonna, I'll answer them one way today, and then in two weeks we'll do it again. Um, not in contradictory ways. I just think there's an awful lot that we can say, but we can only bear so much at a time. So first, why does God seem to delay so long and so often? I'm tempted to say to this one, I don't know. Because the truth is, I don't know. I certainly don't know the particulars for me, and I surely do not know the particulars for you. But it seems like it has something to do with the fact that we are formed in the waiting. Something happens in the season. Have you, have you noticed this in your own life? Something happens. that You are changed. that You are shaped. You are formed. It seems that as we wait, the things like doubt and despair And hope are fleshed out. This is where they're processed. Waiting creates space. It creates the time. It forces us to our knees. And it gives us room to think. Helps us to mature. Sometimes it helps us to release the petty dreams. Sometimes we're waiting for unworthy things. And stuff happens in the wait that cannot happen if we have everything we want. And believe me, I do not like this any more than you do. I wish that I was the sort of creature that the more that I get what I want, the godlier and more selfish I become, selfless I become. But I'm not. Are you? Have you noticed this? It seems to me that pain and longing have shaped me more than abundance and blessing. So I think that's part of it, that we are formed in the waiting Second question is, what do we do? Like, what do you actually do? Like, okay, so here we wait. What do I do in this season? I think this is actually the easiest question of the three. The biblical answer to this is that we lament. And this is kind of a lost art in Christendom, which is tragic because we need it. I don't just mean that we complain, although I'm sure we do a fair bit of that quite naturally in the waiting, but rather we lament. Lament is the biblical expression of longing, and of disappointment, it's the way that we process our grief, and it's also the way that we express trust. You have unfettered, full access to the Father, and the things that grieve you, that you're waiting for, and you ha- you you should re- you'll read this in the Psalms, but you have extraordinary freedom to tell Him how you really feel. Lament is, if you're looking for a definition, lament is. I'll give you a couple elements. It's a Godward expression of grief that calls for help and expresses trust. It's a Godward expression of grief that cries for help and expresses trust. And this is what we do while we wait. There's a ton of Psalms. Maybe, I don't even know, I should have looked this up. Maybe at 25, 30% of the Psalms are psalms of lament. It's a huge chunk. And they give us vocabulary to express lament. How do I, how do I turn my face to him? How do I be honest about my sadness? How do, I, how do I ask for help before I need it? And yet do so in a way that expresses trust. Um, if, you don't, if you don't do this, if you don't feel that you have the freedom to do this, just something's going to break. Something goes wrong. Okay, you need this. You need the capacity to, to have this Godward expression of, of grief that calls for help and expresses trust. And if you don't do it, it messes us up. It makes us bitter. So the Psalms are a great guide, too. I'll give you, a, you jot these down if you want to. There's tons of these, but you might begin if you're just looking for some of this vocabulary. 6, 10, 13, 38, 130, 89. There's a whole bunch. 6, 10, 13, 38, 130, but you could find tons of them uh, and it would be good. It would be use, It's a useful skill to develop your vocabulary of lament. What do I do? How do I do this? How do I make these expressions to him? So we, why do we wait? Well, I think it's because we're formed. Uh, what do we do while we're waiting? I think we lament. We learn how to do that. And then finally, the how. How do we bear it when sometimes it is just so unbearable? And I think that we bear it in community because waiting is hard. Sometimes it's really hard, but if you are in relationship with other believers, other people that are walking with this, who love you, whom you trust, I think that that's where you find the resources to really get through it. Um, I've I've mentioned a number of different times that I went through a very difficult season um, several years ago now, and in the midst of it, I had an almost compulsive need to talk to my friends. Um... I did not want to be a burden on anybody except Kelly because that simply couldn't be avoided and my need for her was great. Um, But I did want to, to somewhat like distribute the load, right? Because it was in conversations that I was metabolizing my grief, processing it, like putting it away, taking the edge off it. And I know emotions are strange things. Some of you are so much smarter at emotions than I am. I am quite stupid about emotions but I remember one peculiar thing was that when I would be stuck in traffic which seemed to happen all the time in this season it almost made me lose my mind nobody likes traffic in general but there was something about being physically literally trapped that just exacerbated this deeper sense in my soul of being absolutely trapped with no way out and I have a Very specific memory. One night I was on 95 heading north. I was just outside of Philadelphia. And it was, nobody was moving. It was was parking lot, bumper to bumper. Everybody stopped. And I was losing my mind. And so I called Brian Miller, who's a good friend of mine. We were friends in State College. And I just needed a human being to talk to me, right? More to the point, I needed a human being to listen to me as I just babbled through whatever I don't remember the substance of my remarks to Brian I remember that feeling trapped and I remember that Brian was there just to like drop what he was doing and to just be with me when I was going insane I had another friend Andy Allen and I asked Andy if he would meet with me um, kind of regularly during the season um, Andy is uh, incredibly fun and playful and light-hearted he has a fantastic sense of humor and he was, and hear this with unmingled honor and gratitude. Andy was, for me, a sort of a jester in that time. Not at all because Andy is a fool, for he is not. But I needed to laugh, and I just needed to be distracted. And so Andy's assignment, we didn't talk about anything that was troubling me. Andy's job in that season was just to like, Andy, I just need you to talk to me once a week and make me laugh. And, and, he, and he, he just entered into it, and he was a dear friend. Some of you know Todd Meyer. Todd is uh, used to be on staff at our church, um, and he is another man who's been a dear friend to me since college. And um, Todd's role in that season was just to give me hope. He could see a hopeful future that I could not see. In fact, this hopeful future. Todd is the reason I'm here. Um, and I couldn't see it. Um, but Todd was a friend in the midst of that. And you guys, I could go down the list as I've begun. There's a, it's a longer list than that. But there were different people, lots of people that... Who they they came alongside Kelly, Kelly bore the, the lion's share of the load, but they walked with me through that time and I would just say if your life is not filled with rich relationships, then the waiting is harder and it's that's why we're constantly you know badgering you get in a small group, build relationships, build the friendships that you can enjoy now but that you might desperately need someday because waiting is better in community so. We're formed in the waiting. It's one of the reasons I think that God puts us through it. In the midst of it, we lament. We express this Godward cry for hope and sorrow as we tell him that we trust him. And we rely on community as we wait. So as we go through Advent, I would love you to be looking at these psalms. In fact, next week, or in 2 it'll be two weeks, Quig's next week, as Brian mentioned, Quig will be preaching with with, uh, Archbishop Quashie. Um, and then the week after that, I'll jump back up here. We'll look at the Psalms some more. It will be in Psalm 37. Psalm 37 kind of turns the knife. If this waiting's not hard enough, it's really hard. When, you're everybody, when you look around and you see the wicked not waiting. They have everything they want and they have it right now. And we're going to try to understand what does Psalm 37 teach us as we walk through our own season of Advent. Dig it? All right. Jesus give us the grace to wait, to trust you in the midst of what might be a thousand year wait, to long for you, to express our sorrow to you, but to trust you that the story ends in praise. Lord, I pray for these dear friends. Would you form them? Would you shape them? Would you make them more like you? Conform them to your image. And I pray that you might give them the supreme grace of friends, a community around them to walk with them through it. That we might together... Be exactly what you want us to be when you finally come again. We love you. Amen.